Yeah, that's devastating. A lot of the times when the nets go bad, you know, there're holes in them whatever, the fish the fishing boats sometimes will just throw the nets overboard or mm-hmm. they'll get caught on something, <clears throat> they just desert the Cut net and they yeah. become what's called ghost nets. And these ghost nets just continue like far after the boat is gone, just continue to wreak havoc on marine life. Whales get caught in this stuff. You see pictures online of, of dolphins and mm-hmm. whales getting caught in these fishing nets. Welcome to the Plant-Based DFW Podcast Weekly Show with Dr. Riz and Maya. A show broadcasted from the Dallas-Fort Worth area that focuses on lifestyle medicine. This is the use of evidence-based lifestyle therapeutic approaches, such as a whole food plant-based diet, regular physical exercise, adequate sleep, and stress management to treat, prevent, and oftentimes reverse lifestyle-related chronic diseases that are all too prevalent. Every week, they feature a guest who speaks on one of these lifestyle medicine pillars. This show is for you, the person who is seeking to improve your overall wellness and quality of life. So whether you are driving, walking, or relaxing at home, we hope this show will provide you one more tool for your wellness toolbox. Let's meet today's podcast guest. In honor of Earth Day, I wanted to rebroadcast a conversation that Dr. Riz and I had with a local environmentalist. Earth Day is an annual event on April 22nd to demonstrate support for environmental protection. You may have seen on the news or on social media, a lot of people just kind of celebrating Earth Day. It is a day to honor Earth and the concept of peace. This is a good day to reflect on the environmental impact of our daily choices. Environmental impact is defined by a change to the environment due to our actions. In the past, environmentalists have encouraged us to recycle, to reduce single-use plastics, such as water bottles, straws, and grocery bags. Today, we know that animal agriculture is the greatest offender to climate change, creating dead zones throughout the world, such as one located in the Gulf of Mexico. Once we learned of this, Dr. Riz and I decided that we wanted to contribute to the conversation, and therefore, we invited an environmentalist to talk to us in more detail about how we actually impact our environment through food choices. In this episode, we will discuss the increased pollution of our streams, rivers, and coastal oceans, the decline in the availability of fresh water, the deforestation of the rainforests, increases in greenhouse gas emissions, and the decline in living marine resources. I will have a video for this podcast in about a day, so you can check back on plantbaseddfwpodcast.com forward slash 112. And again, thanks for listening. Welcome, Steve. Hello. Uh, thank you for joining us. We're excited to talk to you. Um, uh, we have not had too many people speak to us from the environmental standpoint, but we definitely want to uh, focus on that more. Right. So I give uh, lectures on behalf of Sierra Club. Uh, they have a, uh, a web page, Dallas Sierra Club uh, Speakers Group. Mm-hmm. And on that list is a variety of topics, and I talk about sustainable diets. Yeah, when I was a kid, I uh, cared about the environment. I learned about the terms endangered and extinction. And when I was a kid, I learned about how a species of animal was endangered and at threat of going extinct. And I, I thought to myself, why on earth would we humans be doing this? This is absurd. And so I that just started my journey to just learn as much as I can. And I think it's just a matter of caring enough to, to go online and, and look at what some of these organizations are finding out about how we humans impact the environment. It's important to all of us, and we should all get involved in understanding how we impact the environment. Yeah, I think it's interesting that uh, as, uh, as we became aware of our impact on the environment. You know, a few decades ago, people started talking about this, but there was a whole lot of pushback and no, we're not doing this, this isn't happening. And now there is a more wide, widespread acceptance. It's been, I'd say, two, three decades now of it kind of be, uh, gaining some momentum to the point where now there's more widespread acceptance, but you still find a lot of people saying that, sure, uh, we are impacting our environment, but nothing bad's gonna happen of it. So what do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's, it's good to you know, question and get the science right and, and to be skeptical. I think that's, you know, a healthy part of finding the truth. But with take climate change, for example, we've we've had the data and have collected, 
data for so long, and we are absolutely certain now that human-caused climate change is very real and is a very real threat. Yeah, maybe in the beginning it was understandable that there were, you know, skeptics and, and well, we need to, like, be sure and, and do the more extensive studies, like I'm sure you are aware of different types of studies, you know, in the health profession yeah. mm-hmm. and, and uh, nutrition and that sort of thing. But I, I believe we are, we're past that point. We, any, any debate now is, I think, from, from people who are just not knowledgeable enough and just haven't read these reports themselves. Yeah, mm-hmm. I kind of agree with you. It's, it's, I guess my point was being in, in, is that first there was denial that it existed. Now there's acceptance that it existed, but denial that it's doing anything negatively impactful. And I think that the next step will be when people begin to accept and understand uh, that it is having an impact. And just hopefully it won't be too late before that, that we as a society begin to accept that and actually make some meaningful change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what really concerns me about climate change is even, even the, the possibility of something like this happening to us, we, we should, I think society should have taken a lot more concern with initially. Mm-hmm. Like just having the possibility of something this impactful happening, that, that we humans are impacting our climate knowingly, but we're not trying to like figure out how that, you know, where we want to impact the environment. You know, do we want to be proactive right in in how we impact the environment and i feel like we have been dragging our feet when i first became an environmentalist and and learned about humans impacting the environment i wanted to to do my part in minimizing the harm that i caused right on whether it's on the environment or on you know people living in communities across the world um and and behave in a more sustainable way. You know, I did kind of the same thing that people usually do. You know, you recycle, you, um, you know, lower your energy bills, get an electric car, and you become a minimalist. All of that is, is wonderful th- stuff, but I, I never thought about my food choices as being a part of such a huge thing that I could do to minimize my impact. And what I've learned more and more as I study this is that it's absolutely necessary. And I think a lot of environmentalists don't talk about this. They didn't know about this. This is kind of, and, it, and it's not a, too much fault their own. This is kind of like a new thing that we're discovering, how our food impacts the environment in so many different ways. Right. I think a lot of impacts that we care about are things like river pollution, like water pollution. You know, we see it. It's something very real to us. We hear about these like ocean dead zones that's killing fish, you know, these algae blooms that are... Are toxic to humans. This water pollution, you know, I always thought about like the industries, right? These manufacturing plants, these energy plants, they're um, producing our goods. So let's not buy a bunch of new stuff. Let's buy used. Um, But I was surprised to learn that the majority of river pollution comes from agriculture. It's, Mm -hmm. It's the runoff from farms, whether it be soot or fertilizer or animal waste, yeah. all it's, of this gets washed off. It's both animal agriculture and uh, plant agriculture. Uh, you right. Know, the, it, it's the, everything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's everything. Yeah. We need fertilizer to grow anything, whether it's food that I eat or food that is fed to livestock and then people eat livestock. It's, it's all of it for sure. And so one thing that we can do is when we're making a choice in the grocery store, we could choose foods that require less fertilizer, less land. Let's start from the beginning of the fertilizer and what happens. How is that, you know, and the kind of crops mainly being what, corn and soy? What typically happens is we all got to eat, we all need food, and so a lot of farmers grow this food for us. Whether it's vegan food or meat, it's it's grown. In order for plants to to grow successfully, um, a lot of farmers choose to, to fertilize their crops, whether it's through organic compost or chemical fertilizer or animal waste, um, they, they fertilize these crops and that's what helps them grow. It's usually like a nitrogen source and phosphorus and a couple of other things that, that really helps plants grow. And so farmers just put this liberally on, on their fields. So the plants do take up a lot of this nitrogen from the fertilizer, but a lot of it isn't taken up by the plant. And a lot of it either 
it can off-gas into nitrous oxide or it can be washed away into streams and rivers. Okay, so this nutrients, right, it helps things grow. Well, when it's in the river, it helps other things grow like algae. Mm-hmm. Algae just floats in the water and, and loves this stuff and it just eats up this nutrients and multiplies into these like large algae blooms. That, But they also require oxygen. So they actually rob the water of oxygen. It's called hypoxia. Mm-hmm. And the lack of oxygen in the water actually can kill fish. You can see like dead fish in the river. And a lot of this gets washed to the ocean, like the Mississippi is an example, where all these farms run off, gets into the Mississippi River, and then empties out into the Gulf of Mexico. And, and every year there's this like huge, they call it a dead zone mm-hmm. in the ocean, where marine life can't swim in without having problems with, with breathing. And, and this is what we're creating, right? We're creating this, like, right. literally it's called a dead zone. Right. I, I uh, heard recently that uh, there was a dead zone created by the BP oil spill in, uh, in the Gulf. But the dead zone being created by our river runoff is actually uh, larger and more meaningful uh, in impact than the, than the BP dead zone. Whereas this one's bigger and is growing and is staying there. Right. It is interesting how much uproar there was mm-hmm. with the BP oil spill, how much coverage there was. I'd never heard about these dead zones that are happening every single year, not just once, but it's happening constantly every year. I think there are people that are talking more about it recently, mm-hmm. so that's good. That you know, Steve, I, uh, you and I had a, a, a separate conversation a few days ago, but I mentioned that when that BP oil spill was happening, I just was, like many people, just absolutely devastated that every day it was continuing, every single day. And it was just so agonizing to watch. And it's only been recently that I've learned about these dead zones. And I mentioned that it's through the eCornell course on plant-based nutrition. It's a certification course. Um, Dr. Colin T. Campbell is behind that as well. But it was only then that I was introduced. So if I didn't know at my age, didn't know about dead zones, imagine how many people are not even aware. How does that um, meat consumption tie into the nutrient runoffs and pollution? Right. So if you just take like a very practical approach to, you know, as a consumer, what choices do you have available to, to live a happy, healthy life as far as eating food? And can your choices help, you know, with this one impact, for example. And well, a lot of different foods require different amounts of fertilizer, for example. So basically when you grow food to feed an animal and then consume the animal, you're losing a lot of efficiency. There's a, there's a huge like energy conversion loss in that extra step mm-hmm. when compared to just growing food directly for human consumption. Mm-hmm. For example, take a cow. For every 100 grams of protein that you grow, whether it's corn or soy Mm -hmm. or sorghum, and you feed that protein to that cow, you only get about 4 grams of protein back out. That's like a huge waste of resources. And you have to fertilize that cattle feed. You know, you have to fertilize those crops. Over half the corn we grow is, is to feed livestock mm. right so that's that's a huge amount of fertilizer to get a very small amount of nutrients back out so if you want to reduce your nutrient footprint then you're better off going to plant-based foods where we can feed people directly would you happen to know the amount of crops that are grown percentage-wise how much of the crops actually go to human consumption i think i, I saw one study that found out that if that if all of the United States went vegan, we could free up enough calories to feed an additional 350 million people. Mm-hmm. So so that's yeah. that's a lot, and I I kind of like to see it in those terms mm-hmm. of feeding people because I think that that can really hit emotionally with people. I think people really try hard to care about people in need, even in other countries. And, and provide aid, and all of that is good. And when we think abstractly about, you know, the choices we make in the store, potentially requiring more food than is necessary, then it's it's kind of um, it brings it home for me absolutely mm-hmm. because I don't want to be eating food that could have been fed to someone else. And I know that the food system is is very um, complicated. Feeding people in other countries, there's a lot of 
things involved in getting food to the right people. But I think if I can reduce the amount of crops that I require, mm-hmm. it, it's bound to, to help you know, efforts globally to try to feed everyone. Because there are studies that are saying that we have this food gap that's coming, you know, over mm-hmm. the next few decades and how are we going to feed everyone? And people are scrambling with technology trying to solve it and all of these studies are saying that technology alone is not going to save us. They're all saying that we have to address our diets. We we cannot be feeding animals when we have people to feed. Right. And I've heard uh reports that uh less than 20% of the uh plant agriculture that we have in the United States goes to feeding people. And about 80% goes to feeding the animals, which then provide us. And as you just mentioned, there's a factor of 25 reduction in the production of food value. You know, uh, so it's uh, it's clearly not a very efficient system. Not to mention the fertilizer runoff. We just talked about that impact of that, or the water usage. Mm-hmm. You know, tremendous amount of water usage for those animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anything you do on the farm to make food, um, it, it's going to be magnified when you add that extra step of an animal into that equation. Let's take water. So I was shocked to learn that there are underground aquifers all throughout the United States that supplies drinking water for about half of the American population. And most of these aquifers are being depleted faster than the rate of recharge. Mm -hmm. This is basically where we drill a hole in the ground and we pump up water and we we use that water and we use most of it to irrigate croplands. And we're using this water at an unsustainable rate. It's Mm -hmm. gonna be very costly to try to find replacement water sources for this like clean, pristine water. If it exists at all, right? You know, we're using it at, uh, it took thousands of years for that water to accumulate. We're using it in, in a matter of decades. Yeah, we're using it up real quick, and you can reach out to these states and, and counties and that live near these aquifers and above these aquifers and ask them, hey, I heard this crazy thing that these aquifers are eventually going to run dry. What are your thoughts? And they will all tell you that they have absolute concern on mm-hmm. whatever your political affiliation is. Mm-hmm. Like the science about these aquifers are very exact. It's very easy with instrumentation to to measure the volume Mm -hmm. of these aquifers and the water level and watching it go down and and seeing the clock ticking. And a lot of these like water development boards like have their hands up. They're like, we don't know what to do. This is really bad. And why are we doing this? And when you're feeding and when you're watering crops to feed animals and, and animals are so inefficient at converting crop calories into human calories it's it's a huge waste mm-hmm. some i don't know something like 600 gallons it takes to make a burger you know that's that's ridiculous and compared to to vegan alternatives like beans lentils or even some of these plant-based burgers um it's just it's a win-win for nutrient pollution water and and several other impacts as well Can you tell us, and I know that you have one slide in your presentation where you go through the various types of foods that are available to us and the water footprint that each of them um, leave. So can you tell us a little bit about that slide? Yeah, sure. So, um, and anyone can do this. And in my presentation, I provide links to the studies themselves. And try not to be too intimidated when going into these studies. All of them have an abstract that's a couple of paragraphs long that you can um, take directly from the study to see just real quick, it won't take much time, to see what the findings of the study was. And and you can write on the study, it tells you um, what the credentials of, of those researchers. It's really easy. When you mm-hmm. see news articles that talk about studies, I would, I would highly recommend just going into the studies themselves and not taking the article okay. because you're, you're taking someone else's opinion. But yes, a lot of these um, studies are out there. Uh, there's hundreds of studies that try to look at different types of food and, and what their impacts are, whether it's greenhouse gas emissions, uh, land use, fertilizer, water consumption. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And um, there's studies that show, you know, compare foods per pound, per serving, per calorie, per gram of protein. And I think that is important. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of these studies, there's a consensus now, absolutely, that animal-based foods 
are more impactful and take up more resources along all of these environmental indicators, whether it's emissions, a deforestation, species extinction, water consumption, water pollution, it's all concentrated in the animal products. Okay, this is related to our kind of our current animal agriculture system. You know, we've gone from a farming system where the animals used to uh, graze freely and now we've concentrated them into CAFOs, for example. Uh, but what if somebody says, okay, well, I'm just going to eat organic meat, where they've got free range. Mm-hmm. What, what right. do you think about that? Um, I think it's great that people are trying to change their choices in the grocery store and think about it. I think that's wonderful. And I think it's important to be effective in, in the knowledge we have in the choices we make. And I looked into this as well. Uh, there's an organization, for example, called the... Uh, the Food Climate Research Network, and they looked at all the available studies out there that looked at different production methods and looked at this like concept of free range, ha- how it helps reduce emissions. Th- there are definitely some differences between different production methods, um, but what they found was that difference is small enough to where beef is still the number one mm. compared to the very next winner up. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's just, you can reduce beef's emissions, but you, you cannot remove it from the top of the list as the most greenhouse gas intensive or, or any of the other environmental indicators. It is still the worst. Yeah. Not to mention the fact that we actually don't have enough land mass to go free range mm-hmm. for all the animals that we are currently farming to feed the people. Right? Yeah, I think it's a distraction. I think it's a, a dangerous distraction to convince people to stick with their old habits, and they, they love hearing that. They love hearing that their old habits are just fine. Um, but you're absolutely right. Even if it did um, go neutral, um, we simply don't have enough land. Uh, this, this Food Climate Research Network showed that um, with this right stocking density and, and assuming that there is already degraded land, so you're basically assuming that this farmer doesn't know what they're doing and they're degrading their lands. At the right stocking density, there could be some carbon sequestration occurring. Um, however, it's only temporary, right? It only lasts for a little while and it would only reduce that cow's impact, uh, emissions impact by 20 to 60%. Even if you, you know, guess 60%, it's still the worst emitter compared to any other choice in the grocery store mm-hmm. and and it and it's temporary One, there's a moment where the the ground kind of uh, rebounds and, and absorbs that carbon and then it, it kind of reaches a plateau mm-hmm. to where it's no longer sequestering carbon anymore and yet you still have that cow emitting you know more and more so let's say after 50 years that land is perked right up that cow is still emitting it's it's still it's unsustainable. It's a temporary. It's kind of buffered it for a while, and just, then once it's full, you're back to where you're you were. Back up, yeah. And if you if you just choose to eat vegan, we could free up so much land, and that land just leaving the land by itself mm-hmm. can sequester carbon. Like there's there's really no need to have a cow do it for us, and it is a it's a terrible distraction because people feel better about eating beef, and, and no matter what the production method. It's still the worst choice. Um, Oxford, uh, Joseph Poor, uh, most recently did a study of like over 500 other studies, right? There's, mm-hmm. there's so many studies out there. And he looked at a variety of different production methods for all different types of crops. And he has like a range for each food. Mm-hmm. And the very best production method for beef is still nowhere close to the amount of savings you can get by just eating vegan alternatives, mm-hmm. like beans, tofu, right. lentils, things like that. It's interesting when you talk to different or look at different sources, people will quote that the animal agriculture industry contributes 20%, others will quote 35%, others will quote a little over half, 51% contribution to our toxic emissions in the atmosphere. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I've heard like the FAO come out mm-hmm. with a figure, they said 14.5% of anthropogenic you know greenhouse gas emissions is caused by animal agriculture and even with that figure alone that's that's more than all of our transportation combined and and we take we take you know drastic steps in our lives to you know take mass transit buy electric cars there's like huge investments happening 
to like increase the electric car and um we, we're we're you know electric cars are expensive right and you know taking mass transit can can impact our daily life greatly but we still do it because we think it's the right thing to do mm-hmm. well if animal agriculture is more emission intensive than transportation then hmm. that fact alone we should take it absolutely seriously mm-hmm. um, there are other figures out there that I think what they're trying to do is um, so so there's some discrepancies right and it depends on how you measure things um, some organizations are looking at the potential f- for land use change, right? If we go vegan and we don't need all this land, it can p- potentially reforest, for mm-hmm. example, or sequester carbon on its own. Um, we could we could reduce pressures on rainforest today. Worldwide, our um, desire for meat is actually growing, and so places like Brazil, the Amazon, right now you hear recent news articles about the fire the fires going on mm-hmm. it unseen for 10 years like there's a lot of fires being set intentionally mainly by cattle ranchers um, yep, to clear the land to right? clear the land yeah so that's that those fire that's um, that's carbon being released that's the potential for sequestration to be removed and so people are trying to like rightly so factor in yeah. this impact and and that's where I would I would say the number is really closer to 50% than 20%. Okay, because you might say, okay, it's 14 or 18 or 19 or 20%. That's the direct emissions of the animals themselves. But then when you factor in the uh, emissions of clearing the land to make more space for the animals, then you've added in that emissions, right, from, from burning lands. And then when you add in the say the fertilizer for the crops that you use to feed the animals, mm. okay, that adds to the nitrous oxide uh, in the atmosphere. And so when you, when you look at the across, all, when, you, when you vertically integrate everything that's necessary to grow the animals, not just the animals themselves and what they produce, but everything that's necessary, then I think you're really getting closer to that higher number. It's definitely interesting, and, and I, I, I don't have an argument against the effort to try to account for this the, the carbon impact of deforestation or the carbon impact of leaving land alone that's no longer needed to grow mm-hmm. food. I think that needs to be factored in somehow, and people are trying to do it in different ways. Um, I think that's one of the biggest reasons for the differences we see in these studies. A lot of times these studies try to um, stretch out methane's impact over, say, 100 years. But some argue that, well, no, we should shrink that amount to you know 10 or 20 years. And if you do that, then methane is much more impactful. And I think people are doing that because they're seeing these studies like from the United Nations coming out saying, gosh, we only have like 10 or 11 years before like our coral reefs are gone. Right. Like, so what, what time scale do you, do you want to have action happen? And if it's on the scale of like saving our coral reefs, preventing hundreds of millions of people being forced into poverty, hundreds of thousands of people dying from malnutrition, disease, and, and, mm-hmm. and extreme weather. Like, if, if you want to prevent that, then, you know, the, our time to do that is very short. And so maybe we should, you know, measure methane differently. Yeah, as long as we're eating meats, yeah. it's, it's yeah. going to be up there. Yeah. And, and some people say reducing your meat consumption or, or eliminating you know, eating animals entirely is like the single best and quickest thing we can do to, to halt this, this climate change. You can, as a consumer, go vegan yeah. you know, today. And, and you, and I, you had mentioned this to me earlier before we went online. There's different impacts of different things we can do. And you encourage people to kind of research and make a list and understand what's the impact of this and what's the impact of this so that people can make the, sure. the strongest impact. What do you think about that? Yeah, so, thanks for bringing that up. Um, I did this myself and anyone can try to find out exactly you know how much emissions you're saving by the actions that you take or how much water you're saving by the actions you take we we all take actions already and if you compare them to each other you're gonna get a better idea of of what actions are more impactful and I did this myself and as a consumer like I said when I look at emissions or water consumption it's it's always the vegan diet that is the most impactful single thing I can do as a consumer. Mm-hmm. And anyone can do this. They can compare these actions. And we all want to be impactful. We all want to do something that actually makes 
an impact, not just something that makes us feel good. Like, oh, yeah, I'm doing something, you know, yeah. getting rid of straws, you know, which yeah. is great. Mm-hmm. Recycling is great. OK, uh, taking shorter showers is great. But if but what do we need to do? What is it actually needed? Like how much do we actually have to reduce? Right. What is necessary to prevent these negative impacts globally? And how much is that? And what actions do we need to do to actually reach that amount? Right. And for me, I, you know, I've kind of done my own uh, research. And my understanding is that by, by being plant-based, by making vegan choices, it, that, the impact of that is greater than everything else I can do combined. That includes taking shorter showers, not flushing so much, buying an electric car, using solar energy. You put all those things together, and they're still less impactful than just making vegan choices as uh, as a as a way to eat. Can I've I um, that out as well? Interject and and have you explain how methane is released through cows through cattle? Because I think we you know we're assuming that people understand that, but I only learned that when I saw cowspiracy. Cows are what we call ruminant animals and we humans are monogastric animals which means we have a single chambered stomach cows have a multi-chambered stomach and it it allows them to process grass and we breathe out carbon dioxide but ruminant animals like cows they breathe out methane and a lot of it is is goes out the mouth just regular breathing Um, some methane is from um, animal waste from all livestock uh, but a lot of it is coming from just the breathing of the cow. Um, and, and that's like a big chunk of an animal's, uh, of a cow's emissions impact. Um, another big impact is nitrous oxide emissions from, from the fertilizer that's just um, off-gassing, mm-hmm. right, from the fields, growing mm-hmm. the crops, the corn, the soy. And because cows are like the, the least efficient you know, energy converters, that that nitrous oxide also gets very concentrated in a cow's, you know, single footprint. So it's it's the combination, right, mm-hmm. of the nitrous oxide emissions from the fertilizer needed to grow the food for the cow, the fact that the cow is very inefficient at converting crop calories, regardless of, of how you produce the cow. And and it's the uh, the unique biology of the cow himself or herself that causes mm-hmm. methane to be released instead of carbon dioxide. I'd, I'd love to talk a minute about another impact that, that's very dear to me, which is deforestation. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like I said earlier, the Amazon fires uh, causing this destruction. Since 1970, we humans have been able to wipe out half of all wildlife on this globe. And that's, that's huge. Uh, we are in a mass extinction period right now which is caused intentionally by us we're, we're literally just tearing down the homes of of these animals and it's it was something that was super impactful for me because as a kid growing up you know like i said you know extinction and animals being extinct and need protection like these these were concepts that i didn't know existed in my world as a kid growing up and the idea of of us destroying this wildlife at such a great rate is just alarming to me. When you become vegan, you're you're using so much less land. It's like I feel it's the least I can do to help prevent, you know, these vast, you know, forests from from being exploited mm-hmm. and and, you know, leveled to the ground. You know, it's interesting when you tell people uh we literally are in an extinction level event. It's happening right now. Yeah, and, and, it, and they and they will they'll deny it because it's not happening to us as humans. So the perspective is, well, we're still here; we're not going extinct. Mm-hmm. So, but they're not understanding. So other extinction level events, you know, it it wasn't talking about one particular species that was wiped out as much as the number of species that was wiped out or the impact on the earth, right? And maybe they're not understanding that we will eventually become a part of the CLE. It's because we don't, we're not directly seeing the depletion of our natural resources, right? We're, pulled, we're so far away from what's happening at the rainforest, for example. Right, and I think that's because they're not, you know, they're just not uh, connecting the fact that we've wiped out literally tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of different species. Yes. That's what makes it an extinction-level event, right. even if we're still around. So, Steve, you're specifically talking about a topic that I'm also very interested in, the rainforest. What was happening since the 70s that caused 
deforestation and what is the land being used for? You lightly touched on it, but if you can explain that in more detail. This this was shocking to me. You know, I, I thought it was, you know, paper, lumber, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, mineral that's, extraction. That's right. what I always thought. Yeah, too. I, always think too. Yeah. I feel guilty using paper. Yeah. Yeah, but if yeah, me too. I I was super big into recycling. That was like the first steps I took, and I thought I was helping the trees. And but when you look at the science and you look at the causes for deforestation, it's not urban sprawl. It's not building roads and buildings. It's not the lumber, you know, or, or, or mineral <laughs> mining. You know, all of these are important. Yes, the biggest impact was clearing away this land to grow, you know, crops or to graze cattle, like. In the Amazon, they're not even using the lumber, which is so ironic. They're just burning it. They're just burning the lumber. Yeah, they don't even want the lumber. Yeah, they just want to graze those cows and, and grow cattle feed. Um, we, we grow our crops. You know, our um, demand for, for any foods, right, requires land, and that puts pressure on these forests, absolutely. So the crops that are being grown there are then imported into the United States? Are we the largest importer of that? So I believe that some of the products in the United States... Uh, do come either from meat from Brazil or that was grown with feed from Brazil. Oh, I see. Um, there's there's companies like Cargill and JBS that um, do business with Brazil, and they they either get meat or feed cattle feed, and they'll ship it, you know, and sell it on the global market. I think you know a lot of it, for example, is going to the United Kingdom to McDonald's mm-hmm. to you know. To make burgers, yeah. um, there's but, many there's many countries that can't grow the crops they need, right? So they they import it. Yeah, we compete on a global market for for all of these are international corporations, and what they what they do in in other countries will still impact what they do here. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's all traded, it's all competed against, and the idea that there are some countries, some communities that are competing, you know, basically they're competing against cows. For food, it, mm-hmm. it seems like right. unjust. That's weird. Wow, that's crazy. I hadn't thought about it like that. Yeah, and we all we all need land to grow our food. But when when you have a choice to make in the grocery store, how much how much land um, you cause, how much destruction you cause is is tied to the choices you make. And animal products just use way more unnecessary land in Brazil. I was shocked to realize that Brazil has the highest number of activists murdered than oh in God. any other country. Wow. And it's because they're indigenous people just trying to speak up about what's happening to their own land. And they're being murdered. And this is happening. You know, and, and it's the cattle ranchers and, and the, the people who want to grow the feed and, and sell it to these big corporations. You know, they're the ones who stand to make the money. And a lot, some companies want the you know, they tr- they're trying to do like you know deforestation free products but the problem is it's it's hard to track where this stuff comes from you know whether it's from a protected forest or right next door to a protected forest even if you move next door you're, you're still causing that community to move into the forest who, mm-hmm. who may not be you know as scrutinized and so when this soy for example is grown a lot of people think vegans eat all the soy. No, it's the animals. <laughs> when this soy is grown, it, it gets collected. It gets um, combined with other soy, and it gets in, put in a storage unit and then on a truck and then to the port. And by the time it gets to the port, you know, you might have soy from, like, you know, tens of different farms. There's just no way to track. There's no way for these companies to to guarantee that their products weren't directly causing deforestation. Right. Not to mention, for those people who are interested, uh, we always talk about GMO stuff. And mm-hmm. for human consumption, you know, most of us get non-GMO. But uh, the GMO foods, the GMO soy, the GMO corn, that's fed to our livestock. And for the people who are eating meat, guess what? They're indirectly getting GMO by eating the meat that ate GMO foods. I, I think. Yeah, the, most of the GMO crops that are grown in the United States are to feed animals. Right. And, and if you want to do something, if, if you do want to do something about GMOs, you know, then, well, you can really hit that GMO industry hard by just going vegan. Right. But, and then the people who are eating meat don't realize that indirectly they're getting GMO. Right? Right. Yeah, they probably have never thought about that. 
What would you say then um, to the people that say, okay, well, I don't even eat meat, or I'll reduce my meat consumption, but I'll go ahead and eat fish instead? Yeah, the thing about fish is there's there's studies out there that have been you know widely you know uh, talked about that are trying to um, measure the health of all of our fisheries throughout the world and the supply of fish, and they're seeing that the majority of our fisheries are either fully exploited or overexploited, which mm-hmm. means there's there's no room <clears throat> to to feed more people um, when we have a growing population. Uh, we're literally fishing the oceans to death like we're going to run out of fish according to these studies Mm -hmm. um fishing practices in the ocean are absolutely horrific they have these like huge nets um a lot of them just scrape against the ocean floor destroying you know habitats hiding places for for baby fish to to hide from predators like we're we're not only pulling fish out of the oceans we're also destroying their habitat to to grow more fish Mm -hmm. and we're a lot of times um, these fishing boats will pull up all kinds of marine life in that net, and they have to throw a lot of it overboard because they don't have a license for it. So it becomes something called bykill or bycatch. So this is like another like just huge waste. They're they're literally just like wasting a lot of the fish that they're even catching because they're not the target fish that they're looking for. And we're we're talking about things like sea turtles, mm-hmm. dolphins, you know, whales get caught in these nets um it's it's absolutely de- devastating if if we were to like you know harvest animals you know from from nature above ground that would be you know appalling right just capturing all you know everything in this in this forest and just eating some of them is just like it's appalling and people don't realize that but it's it's a very efficient way of getting this fish up to the boats and, and onto shore. Yeah, that's devastating. A lot of the times when nets go bad, you know, there are holes in them, whatever, the fish, the fishing boats sometimes will f- just throw the nets overboard or mm-hmm. they'll get caught on something. <clears throat> they just desert the Cut net and they yeah. become what's called ghost nets. And these ghost nets just continue, like far after the boat is gone, just continue to wreak havoc on marine life. Whales get caught in this stuff. You see pictures online of, mm-hmm. of dolphins and mm-hmm. whales getting caught in these fishing nets. And it's actually the leading threat to a lot of these uh, marine creatures like whales. So people, you know, may care about the whales and want to do something about them. But they need to realize that the biggest threat to whales is a lot of times these fishing nets, these ghost nets. Mm-hmm. Yes. And actually, um, we as sailors care a lot about this topic, about what happens to the marine life. And we enjoy watching sailing channels. And sometimes we'll see a couple kind of, you know, pull over in the sands in their sailboat and try to help a turtle be released from a net. And it's so sad, isn't it, honey? Yeah. Many people are very removed from what you're talking about Mm -hmm. because they don't see it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when you don't see it, you can't relate. But And so for us, as we became sailors... We started to see all this, the injury to the animals. Plastics uh, in the water, yeah. things that people dump overboard, incredible. And so it's brought it home to us even more. And then, you know, it's made us aware of the, the warming of the water, the destruction of the coral, mm-hmm. uh, the impact on the phytoplankton, which produces 50% of the oxygen for our atmosphere. There's so many things that, the, uh, that we're doing to the oceans. Here we are participating in the straw campaign, but the majority of the plastic that's out there is actually left from fishermen. So there was there was a study that looked very closely at the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, mm-hmm. and they were trying to understand you know where the, the the sources of a lot of this plastic came from, and they found that the majority of that plastic in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch was from the fishing industry, hmm. and people don't realize that, right? That that's what's causing most of that ocean plastic, um, the the nets, the lines, all of that's made out of plastic now because it, it was, yeah. withstands the weather, mm-hmm. and and a lot of that gets cast in. They become ghost nets, you know, wreaking havoc on marine life, being the number one cause of threats to whales, um, and then once it does eventually break down, it becomes these microplastics that get into the food chain that that accumulate contaminants. And, and float there in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch and in the food chain. Yeah. Two recent environmental talks that I have heard uh, really put a timeline mm. on the amount of time we have left mm-hmm. before we can make a change. If we don't make a change in that time frame, 
it may be too late. I've heard one guy who we respect a lot say 2026, and that's so close, I can't imagine. I heard another guy say basically 2029 to make a change. And can you comment on that? Sure, so uh, yeah, there's a lot of um, information out there, and um, you know, it all comes down to like, what is it you're you're trying to avoid? I, I did uh, read, for example, one study from the United Nations that talked about if we don't do something by 2030, mm-hmm. we're going to lose nearly all of our coral reefs. We're going to um, send hundreds of millions of people into poverty. So what is, I mean, and, when you say lose our coral reefs, people may not understand what that means. Mm-hmm. Sure. So good point. Thank you. Coral reefs are like... Well, first of all, they're the most biologically diverse place in the ocean. That that would basically be the equivalent of our rainforests on land. Wow. Mm-hmm. Imagine for a moment doing something purposefully to wipe out all the jungles on the planet. Like that's no longer in your kid's textbook. You know, they learn about deserts, you know, uh, grasslands, tundra, but not jungle. It's just not a part of our world anymore. Imagine that, right? Wow. Well, that's what this... United Nations report is saying that if we don't take action by 2030, we're going to lose our coral reefs. Coral reefs also house like a quarter of the marine life in the ocean. That That's going to obviously have a huge impact on the entire food chain in the ocean. Mm-hmm. So that that's crazy. Um, they talk about driving hundreds of millions of people into poverty. And, you know, gosh darn it, you know, we humans were trying so hard to pull people out of poverty. And now we're doing this one thing that's just going to send so many hundreds more million people into poverty. The World Health Organization is predicting hundreds of thousands of deaths due to disease, malnutrition, and extreme weather. Mm-hmm. You know, right yeah. around this and, same and time. And when you say, if we don't do something, mm-hmm. does that mean just begin by 2030 to start fixing things? Or do we have to make a meaningful impact in reversing what we've done by 2030? I, I think the... So different reports, right? But the United Nations, I think, talked about um, we need to have like a 45% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. So Um, we need to change things now. We need to start heading in a better direction now. Well, so yeah, gosh, like totally changing 45% reductions and, you know, uh, that's going to be like a huge undertaking. Absolutely. And then I think it also says... After 2030, you still need to start reducing to zero by 2050. Like mm-hmm. that's that's, and we're still going to lose most of our coral reefs e- even if we do that. So we're talking about not totally annihilating our coral reefs. What happens with when the coral reefs um, die, and what's the deal with the two the two degree warming that we are possibly facing? Yeah, well, it's it's now one and a half degrees, right? Is is kind of the the target, and that's. Oh. Yeah, and one and a half degrees. Because I think we've already gone half a degree in that direction. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I think they're just finding out, like, the science is just being more and more refined mm-hmm. and, and showing that, for example, one and a half degrees, we'll still lose, like, 70% of our coral reefs. Mm-hmm. And if we hit two degrees, we're going to lose all of our coral reefs. And this is just one impact, right, that climate change has. Mm-hmm. But I think that's why these the, the scientific community is saying, okay, well, shoot, we got to do one and a half. And it's so... Um, Surprising to me because all of the studies that I've looked at talk about two degrees and all of them say that even if we eliminate all of fossil fuel use, because we're so late in the game, we can't even hit our two degree mark without changing our diets. They're Mm -hmm. saying that we have to absolutely address our diets even if we're going to hit two degrees. Well, and that's that's a testament to the fact that uh, the the fossil fuel use uh, and uh, all that industrial waste is not the most impactful thing. It's the it's the other stuff that's more impactful, and we can make a bigger change through that. Mm-hmm. Well, I think even these studies are, are taking the conservative route. They're not they're they're doing the hundred year time scale for methane. They're not factoring in what this land could potentially be if we left it alone. They're not even factoring that in. These are like conservative estimates, and they're still saying that because of our projected population growth by twenty fifty, agriculture is going to make a significant enough impact even in those conservative numbers to have to address our diets we're not going to be able yeah. to you know how, how gmo gonna, our way out how of are we going to feed those people right yeah and that's what these studies touch on there's no way to feed everyone and reach our climate mitigation goal of two degrees 
uh, at the same time without addressing our diets. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it's become like an imperative that we make this change. And changing our diet is something that can happen immediately. I, I saw a study once that said just going vegan could help reduce the cost of mitigation by like 50%. Imagine like all of these governments arguing with each other, you know, making the argument, gosh, this is going to cost so much. It's going to cost so much to change out our fossil fuels. Well, yeah, but if we if we go vegan today, we can cut that cost. We can hit our targets much more practically. Right, right. It's a hard, the hard part is for people to accept uh, that they're this paradigm shift and how to institute it. They just can't see beyond what's happening. You know, the, the, the cow farmer can't figure out a way to see to become a soy farmer, mm-hmm. you know, or to retool the way they do things uh, because people are so ingrained in their current ways. Right. You know? Just think if all these uh, government subsidies were used to try to help make these transitions yeah. instead of just to make uh, beef cheaper. Yeah, that's such a another such a simple step that we could take. Why are we subsidizing the very foods that, on the other hand, we're telling people to reduce their consumption of just for health purposes? Mm-hmm. Like our subsidies don't even match like the health recommendations that we have today. Right. Much less match, you know, the habits that we should be encouraging our public to take to help mitigate this this you know catastrophe that's before us. Right. Right. Absolutely. Wow, this has been such an amazing conversation and informative. Well, I would like you to finish off by saying, what's the one thing you think, and I know the answer already, (laughs) everybody can do to make the biggest impact on helping our environment? And then what else would you like to finish with? Fossil fuel use is is absolutely important in in the conversation of mitigating climate change. But as as an individual, a consumer in your daily life, the, the most the number one most impactful thing agreed upon by the entire scientific community when when comparing actions that you could take it's it's to go vegan it's to eliminate animals you know from your consumption and that's that's going to be addressing not just climate change not just deforestation and species extinction but water use water pollution you know all of these impacts all at once. It, it happens to be the number one thing. Food is a big part of human experience. And I'm, I'm actually now not surprised that, that food has this huge impact you know, on our lives and, and on the environment. So we shouldn't be shocked to learn that our food choices is, is what's causing, is, which is a leading cause of a lot of these impacts. And by going vegan, it's, it's a simple thing we can all do every day to, to help create a more sustainable future. Uh, we've learned a lot. I hope the audience has learned a lot. And we really do appreciate you coming to join us for this afternoon. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Plant-Based DFW podcast show. If you like our content, please like, share, and leave a review. Our goal is to provide quality episodes to help support the community.